This is the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Michael Hoke. When we think of archaeology, we probably think of digging up ancient treasure, exploring tombs in Egypt and finding mummies, or maybe even something like Indiana Jones outsmarting Nazis in order to get his hands on biblical artifacts. I'm joined today by Brian Fagan, Emeritus Professor of Anthropology at the University of California, Santa Barbara, an internationally recognized authority on global prehistory and author of dozens of books on archaeological topics. His latest is A Little History of Archaeology. Brian, thank you for coming back on the podcast. You've, uh, you've been on once before. Yes, indeed I have, and it was great fun. So I'm glad to be back. So what is it uh, about archaeology that fascinates us in a way that makes us make movies about it and, 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 and books and TV shows? It's an interesting legacy, actually, which we kind of recount in the book. It's a legacy of days when archaeologists went out to remote lands, often by themselves, and dug holes using uh, large numbers of local people to do it, and often under conditions of considerable danger. And they were way, way away from civilization, as you and I would know it. And it was really uh, a question of being a very strong personality, of being very tough, and also being a very expert diplomat with local chiefs and uh, local authorities and so on. So you really had to be, in some ways, a larger-than-life man or woman to do it. And these people, the early archaeologists, really were very remarkable people. They were adventurers and archaeologists. They weren't archaeologists in the sense of the sort of precise people we are today, but they were really amazing what they did. Uh, and this legacy of romance, and add to that the discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun with its gold almost a hundred years ago, and the discovery of the golden burials of Ur almost a hundred years ago. And you've got this wonderful lingering reputation for the romance, which of course was picked up in the Indiana Jones movies and the Lara Croft tomb robber movies and so on which are, of course, uh, scientifically nonsense. <laughs> um, but Indiana Jones, in fact, it is rumored, is a mixture of a number of early 20th century archaeologists uh, who were put together into this character, which I can believe. Uh, so you're really looking at a very romantic past. People get very upset when they find out that a lot of what we do today is very, very dull, routine detail. It's a highly specialized subject now. And be, uh, before we get into sort of the modern um, archaeology, what did, what did early archaeology look like? How did it start? It started in a number of different ways. It started out of sheer curiosity, and that was where people started finding stone axes in England and in Europe, and they wondered if they were, in fact, the work of very early people before the biblical flood or whether they were a divine manifestation. And in fact, 
uh, in those days, back in the 1840s and 50s, there was a huge debate as to how old humans were. Were they before the six days of creation in the scriptures and so on? And this was one of the threads which led to the establishment of the very great antiquity of humanity in about 1859, in the same year as Darwin published his Origin of Species. Then there was the second kind of thread, which was the thread of classical archaeology, the grand tour of Mediterranean lands, collectors collecting statuary, which they exhibited in their country houses and so on. And this was very powerful and led to expeditions to classical Greece and so on in the 1820s and 30s, of which the most famous example, of course, is Lord Elgin, who ravaged the Parthenon of its marbles. And then there's the third strain, which is the one of really ancient civilizations, unknown civilizations. And this started with the really exposure of ancient Egypt to the European world back in the days of Napoleon and exploded in a series of very daring expeditions by a tomb robber who used to be a circus performer called Giovanni Belzoni with a remarkable young man called Austin Henry Layard, an Englishman who set out to travel overland to Sri Lanka, having never ridden a horse before. And he got addicted to Assyrian mounds and worked on those, as did a French consul in what is now Mosul. And if you put all that together, you've got the discovery of the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Maya in the 1840s by John Lloyd Stevens and a brilliant artist, Frederick Catherwood. And then you got the finding of the Hittites and Schliemann's work at Troy and so on. This is this thread of the discovery of palaces and golden pharaohs, which, as I said earlier, culminated with the discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun. So you've got all that going on. And then on top of that, you've got increasing numbers of discoveries of prehistoric sites in North America with the discovery of ancient North Americans, at least 4,000 years old, and in Europe with the finding of the lake dwellings and so on. It's a long, complicated, and very colorful history. And how did, you mentioned uh, Giovanni Belzoni, how does a, how does a circus strongman from Italy end up uh, sort of helping to found Egyptology? <laughs> One reason, one reason alone, money. <laughs> Early archaeology was certainly in Mediterranean lands a scramble for spectacular finds, antiquities, sculpture, art, gold, uh, artifacts that could be sold to private collectors or to the museums in Europe, which were beginning, like the British Museum, the Louvre of the Berlin Museum, and so on. And he really was a treasure hunter. <clears throat> Although he did have some archaeological conscience, he started off as a circus uh, and show strongman, and his acts on the stage gave him an expertise in levers, gunpowder, and shifting heavy weights, which, of course, are very useful for tomb robbers. <laughs> and he got a job which fell through in Egypt to build a mechanical 
water pump for the Pasha of Egypt. And when that fell through, he was employed by the British consul to move a statue of Ramesses II, which had defeated even Napoleon's soldiers, down to Alexandria to shift to the British Museum. And he did it with a few levers and palm trees and a raft, and you can go and see it in the British Museum. But he was out of Egypt by 1819, his life being threatened by his rivals. And those were the days when people went for each other with guns. It was pretty ferocious. And what is it? What is the the fascination with Egypt in particular? And it and it continues to this day. It's a number of things. It's pyramids, which are the most durable of all monuments. Uh, it's wild tombs. It's graves. It's mummies. For example, in the 18th century, powdered Egyptian mummy was thought to be a powerful medicine for curing people. <laughs> None other than the king of France carried a little leather bag of it on his belt. And add to that the attraction of spectacular scenery, the Nile, crocodiles, and all that. It just had an enduring fascination, which was all fueled by the decipherment of hieroglyphs. And it really was a very exotic place to go to in the 19th century. So all of that, a mixture of tourism and money, and also the inherent fascination of ancient Egypt as a civilization, has endured to this day. And in fact, uh, we've got an exhibit of Tutankhamun in uh, Los Angeles at the moment, and it'll be mobbed by people who just want to see the stuff. (laughs) And you've got the same with the ancient Maya. They have an enduring fascination. And where one of the one of the obviously the the things that's always tied to um ancient Egypt and things like that is this these curses and you know mummies and things like that where does this sort of mythical or 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 this idea of curses come from is that something that was started by rivals trying to scare off other or tomb robbers or is this something that came along elsewhere oh it came out of all sorts of sources it came out of Islamic law, uh, or at least uh, Islamic tales and legends. It came out of um, uh, the movies, Boris Karloff and the Curse of the Mummies, probably the most powerful thing. Uh, it came out of uh, claims that inscriptions in some of the tombs, like Tutankhamun's, cursed people who destroyed the burial or entered it which, of course, although there were curses on tomb robbers in some Egyptian tombs, uh, in terms of Tutankhamun, this was nonsense because most of the people who cleared the tomb lived well into their 80s. <laughs> so it's a myth. And it's one of these, it's like conspiracy theories or fake news. It's nonsense. And archaeology is full of this sort of stuff. And you've mentioned um, the expeditions of John Lloyd Stevens and uh, Frederick mm-hmm. Catherwood, who went to these ancient uh, Mayan ruins. How did they come to travel to these these remote places in the jungle, and what did they find there? John Lloyd Stevens and Frederick Catherwood were travelers. They were professional travelers. Uh, John Lloyd Stevens was an interesting man. He started off in the law and became uh, the equivalent of a democratic uh, politician in New York. And then he got 
intoxicated by travel. He traveled to Russia, he traveled to Egypt, and he wrote letters to his family, which appeared in books in New York and became very uh, much read. And Frederick Catherwood, who was a Scot, was a marvelously, almost photographic artist. And he went to Egypt and the Holy Land, and he did these lovely paintings of them, which are now very valuable. And the two of them met when Catherwood uh, organized an, uh, an exhibition of his finds, his art in New York, and they became friends. And then they heard rumors of ruins in the rainforest in Central America. And Stevens, they both thought, aha, here's an opportunity not only to make a discovery, but make money. And they went out in 1842, I think, and they traveled to Copan in Honduras, which had been mentioned by a few Spanish travelers, and found this spectacular, extremely exotic ruins and pyramids and statues of almost grotesque complexity. And Catherwood copied them with fanatic accuracy while knee-deep in mud <laughs> from rain. And Catherwood, uh, Stevens tried to buy the ruins for 50 bucks, <laughs> but unfortunately he couldn't ship, or fortunately he couldn't ship the ruins out, so the deal fell through. But he wrote uh, a book called Incidents of Travel in Central America, which became an international bestseller. It's still in print, a lovely book, very evocative, uh, in which he claimed and pointed out that this was quite different from the Egyptians. It was the civilization of an indigenous American civilization. And they went back again and went to the Yucatan. They wrote another book and said the same thing. And all subsequent Maya research is based on this work. And one of the things which this book does is talk about the incredible characters who did archaeology and also what they found, because the two kind of go together. Yeah, and they spent uh, quite a bit of time at these at these different sites, did they, didn't they? Oh, yeah. They spent weeks at each one. They were much bezeveled by fever and illness and mosquitoes. Uh, they seem to have got on very well with the local people, which is more than other people have done. So, yeah, they were, they were there for a while. And Catherwood's paintings and pictures are just stunning. If you get a chance to look at some on the web, they're really worth seeing. And you also mentioned uh, before uh, Charles Darwin, speaking of characters involved in archaeology, what what uh, role did Darwin play in the advance of archaeology? Uh, Darwin's big contribution was, of course, the theory of evolution and natural selection. And he provided a theoretical background for the study of human societies over immensely long periods of time. He exposed by saying, look, the world is much older and humans are much older than 4004 BC, the conventional biblical chronology of the time, and opened up a huge landscape of the past, which was blank. And that was his great contribution. His second contribution some years later, because he kept well clear of the issue of men and women and the origin of people, in his book, because he was well aware of the religious implications of this. And the person who did that, of course, was Thomas Huxley, who was Darwin's bulldog. But in 1871, 
he wrote a book called The Descent of Man, which argued that the origins of humans was in Africa, where there was the highest population of apes, non-human primates. And my goodness me, was he right. <laughs> and so it sounds like uh, this sort of romantic idea of archaeologists traipsing through the jungle, uh, talking to local people about legends, things. that There's some truth to that. But the science of archaeology has evolved. So how has it evolved over time? The science of archaeology dates back ultimately to the 1870s or so in classical archaeology when the Germans carried out brilliant excavations with an architect on site and all at Olympia, uh, the site of the American Games, at Samothrace is a major shrine. And they worked at the same time as Heinrich Schliemann, the German, was working at Troy. Schliemann hired workmen who had dug on the Suez Canal and engineers and used them to literally dug the site, dig the site like a sack of potatoes. The Germans were rigorous, and their methods eventually percolated through to Europe to a remarkable Englishman uh, who was a general, actually, Lane Fox Pitt Rivers, who was an expert on the evolution of firearms and weapons. And he excavated to recover information on the development of material remains. And his excavations, in turn, became blueprints for later ones in Europe, but really, until the 1920s, excavation was pretty casual. And excavation on a large scale ended with really uh, Sir Leonard Woolley at Earth of the Caldies when he dug with labor forces of hundreds of people who shifted earth while listening to uh, canoe songs sung by the foreman. I mean, this was big stuff. And only a handful of Europeans on the scene. Archaeology as a science really developed in the 30s with the development of an environmental archaeology, and then after the war with the dramatic development of radiocarbon dating, and then highly sophisticated methods of recovering data and studying it, and statistics and so on. Today, archaeology is slow-moving, highly specialized, and very rigorous which makes it, to the average layperson, often somewhat unintelligible. And it is burdened also with a lot of theory, which is also difficult for laypeople. So it's much harder to communicate with the public about archaeology than it used to be because it's not so exciting. And what is on the horizon uh, for archaeological discoveries? Is there anything we should be looking forward to in the near future? A number of things are going on. One, there was destruction of archaeological sites around the world at a really uh, epochal rate. This is partly due to wars. Iraq is a good example. It's, and Syria is another one. It's partly due to rapid industrial development, deep plowing, mining. You name it, it happens. Road construction. And a huge amount of archaeology has gone forever. Because the one thing about archaeological archives is they're in the ground. They're finite. Once they're dug up, they're gone. So that's one trend. How are we going to stop the destruction and preserve what's left? 
A second trend is cultural tourism. Enormous numbers of people now are enjoying the past. And this raises a fascinating challenge, which is how do you preserve sites like the Palace of Minos in Crete or the Easter Island statues or the Parthenon in Greece? which are, and the pyramids, which are literally being loved to death by the feet of hundreds of people. Hmm. Do you build replicas? What do you do? This is a fascinating challenge. <clears throat> In terms of discoveries, without question, the most spectacular area for the future probably is Southeast Asia and China. The classic site, everyone says, oh, we must dig it, is the uh, burial mound of the first emperor of China, Shui Hangdi. But fortunately, the Chinese have been smart and not dug it because it is said to be a map of China with all the maps in Mercury. And there are, in fact, we know from magnetometers, high levels of Mercury in the mound. And also, they believe they don't have the technical ability to excavate it. And also, why do you excavate a wild tomb? But there's all sorts of stuff. And, uh, for example, now a great deal of work's being done with um, lasers with, from space. And these enable us to identify entire landscapes of villages and hamlets and streets and field systems under the rainforest in Maya country in Central America. And also around spectacular sites like Angkor Wat in Cambodia. So what you're going to see is a lot more look at archaeology on a large scale in a landscape sale and then occasional very spectacular excavations. All right. Well, the book is A Little History of Archaeology. Brian, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. That does it for this week's episode. You can find more at yalebooks.yale.edu or on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or your favorite app. And if you like what we're doing, please subscribe and leave us a rating because it really helps.